You are Locked On Vikings, your daily Minnesota Vikings podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Locked On Vikings. I am your host, your pal, and the kid you copied off in math class. My name is Luke Braun. You can find me on Twitter at Luke Braun NFL. You can find the show on Twitter at Locked On Vikings. You can find the show anywhere you find your favorite podcasts, like Spotify, Himalaya, Google Podcasts, whatever you like, or you can just ask your smart device like Siri or Amazon Alexa to play podcast Locked On Vikings to go right to the most recent episode. And today we are going to deep dive into the Vikings 28-24 win in prime time against the Dallas Cowboys. Before we get too deep into it, there's a couple of news things that I want to touch on. Uh, Mike Zimmer kind of addressed a lot of the injury stuff that had gone on in that game. Of course, there were a number of notable absences. Uh, my, my hunch is still that Adam Thielen won't play in the upcoming Denver game. Uh, however, there are some other more intriguing situations that we should probably touch upon. Uh, of course, Trey Wayne's missed this game. Um, you know, Mike Hughes uh, came in as a backup, got a ton of work. He had missed that week of practice with some undisclosed family issue, and I'm sure nobody really feels a desire to know what that family issue was, but he was also battling an ankle injury, and he ended up sitting, uh, Mike Zimmer confirmed, uh, some people were like theorizing some very weird stuff about why Trey Waynes wasn't playing. He was there, he was at the game, it wasn't like he was at a funeral or something and couldn't even make the trip, and they shut him down because of the ankle injury, not the personal issue or any kind of weird disciplinary thing or any anything like that. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people didn't think that, but there were some that did, so I thought I should just uh, throw it out there. But the big news is that Linval Joseph had a, a minor knee surgery, and that probably means that he has an extended absence. Now, Mike Zimmer was playing kind of coy about it, and he said, ah, you know, maybe there's a chance that Linval plays this week. I would doubt that, especially coming uh, into a bye and, you know, playing like the week after you get surgery is uh, kind of buck wild. I, I just don't think that the Vikings would like push him like that, especially with these kind of nagging knee injuries. This reminds me a lot of what like Matt Khalil dealt with. Sometimes with these things, you just got to let this stuff heal and just take an extended absence and, and hope that it doesn't ruin things moving forward. And so with a whole bunch of uncertainty surrounding Linval Joseph and his surgery and his situation, let's talk a little bit about that defensive line and the defense as a whole, right? Because, you know, I kind of said yesterday... I kind of tabled the defense until I could know more and look at some of the more like in-depth stuff that comes out in the days following the game. And so full transparency, unfortunately, because it was a primetime game, late night game, I don't have uh, the access to the all 22 yet. So I can't do some of those more like tape focused things, although, you know, you can do your best with with the TV tape and I will do my best there and I'll follow up with anything else that I'm like uncertain about on Twitter. So make sure you go check that stuff out if you really want to confirm. But I think we do have enough information to draw some conclusions here. So one of the things that really stuck out to me as I was just kind of like perusing the stats from the game is that in all of week 10, uh, Monday Night Football notwithstanding, nobody took longer to throw the football than Dak Prescott. Dak Prescott had, on average, over three seconds before he threw the ball on Sunday Night Football. And that kind of tells us a whole bunch of things, right? Because a lot of those those plays really felt like the coverage was just getting shredded and, you know, you kind of saw Hunter and Griffin, like, getting close but not quite getting home a lot. And it's like, oh, if they just could have covered a little longer, you know, you could have had a bunch of sacks. 
but that's a really long time. And a lot of that's inflated by, you know, Dak Prescott breaking the pocket and, and running around and kind of buying time. And that's just sometimes you just have to tip your cap to him making a good play. But I think there's a lot more going on here. I mean, for, for coverage, it's really hard to guard against anybody for more than, call it three and a half seconds. And so, you know, if the average is just over three, there were a lot of plays going over that threshold of like, okay, you can no longer expect players to cover. And a lot of those third downs, the third and longs that Mike Zimmer lamented in his press conference were those plays where, you know, Dak Prescott just kind of ran around and and bought all the time in the world, and then eventually somebody breaks open. You just can't cover for that long. So I, I am willing to cut the coverage a little bit of slack. Not all the slack. There were some plays where they just got beat, especially Mike Hughes. He just kind of got dusted by Amari Cooper a couple of times. There were, of, co- of course, the toe drag catches that were thrown like three yards out of bounds. I'm not quite sure how you defend those, but there were plenty of times where Mike Hughes, you know, just kind of got beat by a wide receiver, and, you know, he deserves to be dinged for that. But I don't want to let the pass rush off the hook. But it's weird. You have to be really nuanced about this. So first things first, this is not a criticism of Everson Griffin or Daniil Hunter. Griffin got seven pressures. Hunter got 10 pressures for the third time this year. That's unbelievable. It's insane. These two are are like far and away the, the best edge rusher tandem in football. And they went up against Lael Collins and Tyron Smith, two, just an elite tackle pair. And they managed to get a ton of production against them. Now, the, Dak Prescott had a ton of dropback. I think he had like 47 dropbacks or something like that. So 17 pressures between the edge rushers, like from a rate standpoint, is isn't nearly as impressive as it sounds from a volume standpoint, but like, oh my god, whatever, what a nerdy thing to say about it, right? Like, they dominated, and they produced a ton, and this is totally not on them. This is about the interior pass rush, and it's a little bit about blitz packages, which did not get home very well. Sometimes they did, and and sometimes, you know, Dak Prescott just made a great throw under pressure that got there in a reasonable amount of time, and he just, like, found a way to thread a tight needle, and then somebody would come down with a contested catch, and, and there, there was a fair share of just, yeah, the Cowboys made some good plays, and so you probably have to kind of adjust for opponent here. And I mean, that's only fair, right? We do the same thing when the defense shuts down somebody like the Giants. We adjust for opponent, so it, it's only fair to kind of adjust the, the concern level down just a little bit because, hey, Dak Prescott's good at football. But here's the issue that I, I really saw, and this happened both with, you know, the Shamar Steffen and Jaleel Johnson pairing that was on there for first and second down, but on those third downs when they bring in the other two edge rushers, uh, Weatherly and Odenigbo, there was just no interior push. Now, these guys got home sometimes, and there were some signature plays made by all these guys, so, like, by no means is this, like, a comprehensive thing of their game, but it was an issue here. The edge rushers played on, like, 15 or 18 snaps, and the, uh, the, the defensive tackles that were in this game played, like, 25-ish, 28-ish uh, pass rushing snaps. And on those, none of those guys got more than two pressures, which is reasonable for, like, backup and rotational players, but we kind of needed them to step up here in Linval Joseph's absence. And Linval Joseph might continue to be absent, so we're going to continue to need them to step up, and they didn't really do that. And if you go back and watch the actual plays where Dak Prescott was, you know, converting third and 12, third and seven, third and six on drives that ended up being touchdown drives that kind of put this game way more into question, you'll kind of notice that a lot of the time, uh, Everson Griffin and Daniel Hunter would kind of go upfield and force Dak Prescott to step up and be in a much more uncomfortable situation, but because the interior didn't really get any push on the off on the interior of the offensive line, Prescott had the room he needed to step up into that, and then he could go find the throw that he needed to make. And the throw being there is the part that I can't speak to as much as I wish I could, just because I can't see the tape yet. I mean, if you're an early 
early bird. You might not even be able to see it yet. I'm sure it'll come out sometime in on Tuesday morning. But in terms of just the pressure not getting home, here is how Mike Zimmer's uh, defense works when it comes to pass rush. And uh, Brett Coleman actually did a, a good video kind of explaining this. He talked a little bit more glowingly about it than I guess I would. I, I think that a lot of teams do what the Vikings do here, and he kind of made it seem like it was unique to the Vikings. Maybe I'm wrong, which would be awesome because it's a pretty cool thing that they do. But for the Vikings, pass rushing is not just try to get by your guy and tackle the quarterback. It's not that simple. There is a little bit more design to it. And they're essentially trying to manipulate throwing and running lanes, especially against mobile quarterbacks like Dak, who can, you know, break the pocket and go improvise and go buy time and make a big throw down the field. This is, by the way, going to continue to come up as they got guys coming down the schedule. I mean, they have Aaron Rodgers who can break the pocket. Mitchell Trubisky can break the pocket. Of course, Russell Wilson's kind of the god of this. So this is going to be really important. And essentially, the, the pass rushing lanes are very unselfish. And you kind of hear that trope all the time. Mike Zimmer talks about it. The players always talk about, you know, not playing selfish and playing for the team and, you know, doing your job so that somebody else can get the glory. This is one of the points where that comes into play. So what I mean by that kind of unselfish thing is that a lot of these pass rushes are not designed for everybody to have a chance at the quarterback. Uh, uh, sometimes those pass rushing lanes and the job of guys, especially guys on the interior, this is the kind of dirty work that Linval Joseph does all the time, and it's why he doesn't particularly generate a lot of pressures, and it's also why we don't really evaluate him on, on generating pressures, is because his job is to basically fill a certain gap and get a push and, and kind of move offensive linemen and manipulate the shape of the pocket in a certain way that takes away an escape route, assuming the edge rushers win. And, and a lot of the pass rushes are designed that way. A lot of the time, it's an interior pass rusher trying to essentially like push the shape of the pocket so that if the edge rushers win, the quarterback can't escape to you know that person's side. And sometimes it, it's the other way around. Sometimes it's, you know, a, a one edge rusher will be instructed to kind of go way upfield while the other one is instructed to kind of chase them through uh, through a lane that just got taken away by the other edge rusher going upfield and that kind of thing. But it's all very shaped out. I'll, I'll link a video in the show notes where, where Brett Coleman explains it better than I can. And of course, he has visuals and stuff. So it'll probably make a lot more sense after watching that. But suffice it to say that this creates kind of a delicate balance. And if somebody doesn't do their job, like the advantage of this is that that often makes the job of the pass rushers a lot easier, right? You don't have to get past someone. You just kind of have to get to a certain spot, which most of the time offensive linemen are more than happy to let you do. So long as you don't, you know, generate any pressure or get into the backfield, they're fine to let you kind of go over one way and then quote unquote lose the block, even though you've already done your job. But if you fail at that and you can't get the push, even against an interior line that like is probably willing to concede that simply because you are are so outmatched. I mean, come on, a backup defensive tackle versus the interior line, the like elite and well-regarded interior line of the Cowboys, of course, that's this huge mismatch. Then kind of the whole shape of the whole thing can fall apart. And that's really what you saw. You saw a lot of uh, you know, the edge rushers rushing a little bit too far upfield. It forces Dak Prescott off his spot. So for pro football focus, which is what I'm using to like cite those pressure numbers, they count that as a pressure when you got to a place and it meant, and it meant Dak Prescott had, had to move. Well, you disrupted the play and therefore you're credited with a pressure, but it's not actually going to like harm the play that much because Prescott has room to move and that's somebody else's fault. 
so that pressure doesn't have the same impact you kind of wish it had. Now, on the back end, again, Mike Zimmer didn't seem particularly concerned with this the play of the coverage. I think he, too, kind of said, yeah, well, you know, I mean, he had the ball a long time. You can only cover for so long, and, and you know, they made a bunch of good plays. I'm not too mad about it. That was kind of his his take on, on the whole thing. Um, but let's talk a little bit about some of the coverage stats because uh, Mike Hughes is probably where we should start. He was targeted 17 times. That is a huge chunk of Dallas's entire passing offense going at Mike Hughes. And he made a couple of plays, right? He almost had a pick, I think, once or twice. He made a couple of pass breakups. He made some tackles and all that. But largely, like, I I think he allowed, like, 11 of those to be caught, and I think he gave up over 100 yards. I mean, Mike Hughes kind of got torched in this one, and hey, that is going to happen to a young cornerback, right? And so, hey, you know, where do we go from here? Is this a sign that, like, oh, no, he's not developing? He's not working out? Did he just get beat by good players? Should we worry? Shouldn't we worry? Uh, And I guess I'm just going to defer that one to Mike Zimmer, because I I think that he has a pretty uh, healthy take on this whole thing. So here's what he had to say about that. Honestly, he, you know, there's times he wasn't tight enough, and we probably, you know, there were some times technique-wise that uh, he could have been better. Uh, He opened up a little bit too much and let the receiver run, but he was in position most of the night, and and honestly, the guy made a bunch of great catches, and they made some really good throws. So when I looked at the pass defense things, you know, there was a couple of things that that wasn't very good, but uh, for the most part, we were in the right place, but they made the plays and we didn't. So for the purposes of this show, for now, I'm just going to take Mike Zimmer at his word there because I, again, I don't really have the ability to double check him for now. And even if you disagree, I mean, like, come on the thought experiment with me at least. So like, let's, let's think about this game as though, okay, yeah, no, none of this was coverage's fault and they're totally excused. I don't think that they are, but let's just say that they are. What, what can we change about the pass rushing thing to like fix this issue, especially if, you know, you don't get Linval Joseph back, because that's an easy answer, right? Like, get Linval Joseph back, he'll go, you know, take those gaps and take those spots, and you'll be back to, you know, where you were in the first place. But let's say you don't get him back for a while. What do you do? And I think part of it is, I think you need more dedicated three-technique pass rushers. Right now, they don't really have one. You know, on running downs, they have Shamar Steffen and Jaleel Johnson, and I the, the team has treated both of them uh, like... I mean, honestly, they've treated both of them out of position. I think Shamar Stefan is more comfortable at nose. Uh, and he's been playing three tech. And I always thought that Jaleel Johnson was more comfortable at Iowa when he played three technique. But in terms of the actual camp and practice reps he's gotten, I think he's performed better, I guess, at nose. So they've put him there. Uh, I don't know if that is as natural for him, but I guess it's just what the result of, of his practice is. So hard to argue with it. But either way, both of those guys are kind of nose tackle type bodies. And then on on passing downs, you've been bringing in, you know, Weatherly and Ifadi Odenigbo. And that means that guys like Hercules Mata'afa and Jalen Holmes aren't coming in. Armin Watts, again, he's playing the kind of backup nose tackle role, kind of taking the reps that were Jaleel Johnson's when, when Linval Joseph was getting the starting role. They kind of both just shifted upward. Armin Watts, I mean, hey, he got his first sack on his very first NFL snap. That's pretty cool. But he, too, is kind of a nose tackle, and you don't really have right now, like, there was not active in that game, like, a true three technique, unless you count Shamar Stefan, who I think is more of a nose. So one of the things might just be to, like, change your active-inactive strategy and have a, a three technique on the field to play in third downs instead of, you know, having, like, Stephen Weatherly rush from a two-point stance from, you know, up the B-gap. Now, guys like Odenabo and Weatherly have had reasonable seasons, so perhaps this is like an overreaction, and, and you know, maybe Odenabo, even from, you know, an, an unnatural position, Weatherly and Odenabo maybe are better than, like, Hercules Mata'afa or whatever. But I think do whatever you have to to get somebody who's able to penetrate there, 
And I think one of the adjustments that you can make is to put those kind of supportive roles in the hands of better players. And that might sound a little counterintuitive, right? You want your stars to be the ones like with the leverage on them to make the play. But I guess put the hardest thing in the hands of the guy who is good. And and maybe the hardest thing is, you know, be the guy who gets penetration and get the sack, in which case you just have to kind of structure your personnel decisions based on, you know, who is best at doing whatever that particular assignment is, which is probably what they're trying to do anyways. But honestly, I would make a switch to like more pinch runs and more things where, or uh, pinch rushes and stuff like inside twists and stuff, which they do use plenty of, don't get me wrong, but I would just kind of up the count a little bit and give it a, a situation where the edge rushers don't have to rely on interior pressure coming up or, or an interior push, not even pressure, but just an interior push, you know, give them more difficult assignments, perhaps, that require them to do more work on their own. I mean, they're Griffin and Hunter. They're going to be able to be successful in the face of more difficult circumstances. Put the load on their shoulders. And I know the Vikings have a whole bunch of different pass rush strategies, and I'm sure that some of those strategies are more difficult on some players and some are easier on those players and, you know, so on and so forth. So I think I'm just going to try to give the interior pass rushers the easiest job I can, which probably means the edge rushers have a harder job, and maybe that means they're not getting 10 pressures a game, but that's okay as long as their pressures, you know, can kind of count for a little bit more than they're counting for right now, because right now, quarterbacks like that Prescott, and let's be honest, even like Matt Moore did this, and shoot, Case Keenum even had some rhythm going in against Washington. This edge pressure isn't only like struggling to get home for actual sacks, I think it's struggling to have the impact that sh- that pressure truly like typically has and I think I'm okay with getting fewer pressures if it means that those pressures actually mean what pressure is supposed to mean and of course I'm sure that there's stuff that has to be cleaned up in coverage I know there were a few technique moments for Mike Hughes where he just kind of lost mano a mano to Amari Cooper that's not a schematic thing that's just getting beat and there's technique stuff that he can clean up and that's what you kind of take into practice into the next week they definitely had safeties in the box very often this was probably an anti-Ezekiel Elliott move again they did a great job against Ezekiel Elliott and to the credit of the interior rushers, you know, to uh, Johnson and and Stefan, they did a great job against the run there, weren't particularly productive, but they were in the right spot and they didn't get washed out. And that's really all you need from those interior guys. Let somebody else go make the play. So to their credit, that was pretty good. Although the lack of interior push, you know, that doesn't like absolve them of it, but it is part of of that evaluation. And another part of the, the shutting down of Ezekiel Elliott was that the Vikings were loading the box a whole bunch and it left one less person in position deep and intermediate. And the Cowboys were kind of going at that. And you actually saw Dak Prescott making those adjustments at the line. There's actually a really cool moment. I'll see if I can't find it, uh, a clip of it, but I, I'm not sure. Uh, but th- there was this moment where Dak Prescott was kind of up at the line and he was, you know, barking out calls and he was essentially uh, adjusting all of the protections because this was one of those looks where the Vikings had both linebackers up on the line of scrimmage, Barr and Kendricks. And uh, because Anthony Barr is usually the pass rusher, Prescott was kind of adjusting the protection to his side. Well, Barr backs off, Kendricks actually blitzes, they end up with a pressure, and Dak Prescott uh, misfires the throw, and I believe it ended in in a in a fourth down. So that was this kind of really cool moment where you saw Dak Prescott kind of adjusting all those protections and blitz. Uh, I, I actually kind of think Barr was blitzing on that play, but because the, he very clearly changed the protection and was like pointing at Barr and it was like not a secret that he was sliding the protection off that way. 
you just saw Barr and Kendricks kind of like make this moment of eye contact and they each knew exactly what that meant and exactly how that coverage was was flipping. And Barr does have the license to do that in Zimmer's system. He's been there long enough. And he knows what he's doing, where he does have the leeway to make those kinds of calls. And of course, you know, Barr and Kendricks and their friendship and stuff, they're very on the same page. It's really cool to see the, the defense do that kind of thing in a game where there were a whole bunch of lowlights on the defense. Really cool moment. Hey, Peloton has a limited time offer for you. Get $100 off of accessories when you purchase the Peloton bike and get a great cardio workout at home. Go to OnePeloton.com and use promo code LOCKED to get started. And hey, have you ever been so, like, laser-focused on a Vikings game that you completely forget to eat? It could not be me. But hey, if it happens to you, no worries. That's what DoorDash is for. DoorDash connects you to all of your favorite spots in your local area. Ordering is easy. Just open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be delivered right to your door wherever you are. And not only does it have, like, you know, your favorite pizza joiner or whatever, there are over 340,000 restaurants in 3,300 cities. So, hey, you might find a new favorite. With door-to-door delivery in all 50 states and Canada, you can order from your local go-tos or just choose from your favorite restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, Cheesecake Factory, or whatever. Don't worry about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash. And hey, right now, listeners can get $5 off of their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code Locked On. That's $5 off of your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store. Enter promo code Locked On. That's promo code Locked On. Five bucks off of your first order from DoorDash. Wrapping things up with the defense, of course, there were some other defensive hiccups. Xavier Rhodes gave up all five of his targets, though Zimmer also stood up for his level of play, and and his targets weren't nearly as devastating as some of the Mike Hughes ones or some of the ones that came in the safeties line of play. But ultimately, again, and kind of like I talked about yesterday, you know, the defense stepped up in the moments where it mattered and they made enough clutch plays to kind of erase an otherwise spotty, I guess is what I'll call it, performance. But let's flip to the other side of the ball and, and flip to the offense, because something very cool about this one, only nine allowed pressures. Three of them came from Pat Elfline. He didn't get that bad of a pass-blocking grade, uh, but three pressures still isn't ideal. Uh, but if that's the worst it gets, your offensive line had a reasonable day. But here's where it gets a little bit weird. Kirk Cousins was logged with 14 pressured dropbacks. So if only nine pressures were ever given up and there were 14 dropbacks, obviously something doesn't add up. Now, a lot of the times that's the other way around, where you would see something like, you know, Kirk Cousins had his 14 pressured dropbacks, but there were 16 credited pressures. And sometimes that means, you know, two guys can give up pressure on the same play. It only counts for one pressure drop back, but two different guys get credited with a a screw up. But the other way around, if there are pressure dropbacks that are happening, but nobody is being credited with a pressure there, and that's not the quarterback because they will they will credit the quarterback with pressure if they think that it's the quarterback's fault, that means that the, that it's unblocked pressure. So what kind of plays bring on uh, uh, unblocked pressure? Well, screens. That That's kind of what that means, I think. Uh, I, I don't know if... I, I kind of thought PFF uh, adjusted for that, but sometimes, like, there are other, like, play-action moments where, schematically, you, on purpose, allow unblocked pressure. You got to give the defender credit for you pressured the quarterback because you came up field and you did your job, Uh, but Kirk Cousins, you know, like, got the ball away in, in the face of that, and I think he only took the one sack. But the the second Kyle Rudolph touchdown, the one that came on, by the way, the exact same play that the Vikings got two touchdowns against Detroit with, 
uh, this time it just happened that that the CJ Ham leaking fullback thing wasn't there, so Cousins had to progress back to the the deeper part of the read, and that was Kyle Rudolph, and he was there. But that was a play action pass where the Vikings actually on purpose leave defenders unblocked, and the hope is that they are so eager about having been unblocked that they go straight for the play action, and I believe that's kind of what happened there. However, I think there was one cowboy that didn't take the bait, and he ended up going for Kirk Cousins. Kirk kind of had to throw that one off his back foot. He still managed to place it really well for an easy touchdown, so credit to him for that, of course course, and credit to, to Rudolph for a really nice route on that one, and obviously the unbelievable catch, which I'm sure everybody else has talked about uh, plenty, but whew, that was a real good one. And the other thing I want to talk about is Stefan Diggs. I actually saw some people like expressing that he had like a quiet day or something like that. He really did not. He had a circus catch. He converted like three third downs. He was kind of there in the clutch when the Vikings really needed him, and in a close game like this, kind of like what I talked about yesterday, I mean, I, I kind of think that this game mirrors the Kansas City game really, really well, because both were very close and that means both had all kinds of little moments peppered all throughout the game that if you change one outcome or another, you know, the Vikings don't win here. The Vikings don't get that two-point conversion on a Kyle Rudolph contested catch. Another really great moment for Rudolph in this one. If they don't go for that fourth down, if they just go for a field goal, and that kind of changes the complexion of things, you know, that fourth and five, there are those kind of obvious moments, but then there are there are other ones. You know, there was a, a deep throw to Kyle Rudolph that uh, Cousins kind of sailed, and you could, they cut right back to him, and you could totally tell he knew that he sailed it. Uh, Xavier Woods could have easily intercepted it, in my opinion, and he like didn't lay out for it. Uh, that you know, hard to tell again, but it seemed like he was in pretty good position, and that was a, a throw that was certainly dangerous. You know, to the overhaul point. If that one's just a little deeper or a little bit further inside, and that suddenly is an interception. Uh, you know, there was the almost fumble scoop and score that was very clearly an incomplete pass, but, you know, that was inches away from just being a fumble. So that kind of stuff, I, I think a lot of it comes down to luck. And I mean, and the Vikings got a bunch of lucky breaks just by the Cowboys kind of un, like committing unforced errors. Like uh, it turned out that the baffling fair catch near the end of the game from Tavon Austin was a miscommunication. The coaches weren't just like, hey, fair catch it no matter what. They instructed him, hey, you know, don't waste clock trying to, you know, grind out two extra yards. And I think that he took that as, okay, don't waste any clock and just fair catch it. So he fair caught it. Uh, but I mean, that was the fastest 20 yards you could have had. He had all that space in front of him and he's Tavon Austin. He probably could have made a guy miss or two, uh, but he didn't want to, you know, burn a ton of clock like running around, but he didn't have to. He had the space and should have taken it. Uh, and so they had to have a conversation after that to kind of realign on that thing. That's a huge lucky break for the Vikings because they didn't play that punt coverage very well. Not to mention some of the questionable play calling in the series leading up to it where, you know, the, the, the turnover on downs. Um, that was the, the throw to Ezekiel Elliott that Eric Kendricks ended up breaking up was not the first read in the progression. It looked like it looked like Dak Prescott did look over to the right and as something had been taken away. The look wasn't quite right for him. So he had to turn over to the other side of the field where Ezekiel Elliott looked like he was breaking open, but then Eric Kendricks laid out and made this crazy athletic play. And, and that was a turnover on downs. So all these little inch by inch moments kind of add up and, and, you know, the Vikings win like two more than the, the Cowboys do and they end up getting the win. And last week it went the other way around. That's just kind of the nature of things. You get close games, you over, time, every team, even the Patriots, even the Browns, even the, the Jets and the Saints and all of them, the Vikings and all of them, 
eventually it evens out that you win about half of those one score games because there's just so many luck-based factors that can tip the scale one way or another that eventually over time the variance will will kind of even out. So the way the Vikings had been winning, you know, up to these last couple of games where they've been kind of winning more decisive games is like the more sustainable thing and I hope that they can return to that against Denver. But that is going to do it for this episode of Locked on Vikings. Uh, For the rest of the week, we are going to be talking all about the Denver Broncos and whatever is going on over there in Mile High. In the meantime, and for some film-based follow-up to all this, you can find me on Twitter at LukeBronNFL. You can find the show on Twitter at LockedOnVikings. This show is available anywhere you find your favorite podcasts, or simply ask your smart device to play podcast Locked on Vikings. I will see you all tomorrow for Crossover Wednesday, and as always, Skull!